The following podcast contains advertising. To access an ad-free version of the Lawfare podcast, become a material supporter of Lawfare at patreon.com lawfare. That's patreon.com lawfare. Also, check out Lawfare's other podcast offerings, Rational Security, Chatter, Lawfare No Bull, and The Aftermath. Life is full of what-ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard Fixed Indemnity Insurance Plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Senator Grassley has been pushing this issue for a long time. He has support from other senators, Republican senators on that side of the House. Democrats have been supporting this. This is not an issue on that we need to see in terms of, of politics. It's, frankly, there's a consensus on it. The question is, can you break through the divisiveness that seems to be the, you know, the default these days and just recognize that you actually agree on these issues, so get it done. I mean, there's really remarkable consensus among a good chunk of Republicans and a lot of Democrats on a lot of these issues. I'm Natalie Orpet, and this is the Lawfare Podcast, October 8th, 2021. It's been almost a year since Trump lost the presidency and over nine months since a new administration and a new congressional majority took power. We're moving further and further away from Trump's controversial use of presidential authorities, and it seems like we've lost momentum in the push for systemic changes to prevent future abuses. Fortunately, some people are still pushing. I sat down with Bob Bauer, former White House counsel to President Obama, and Jack Goldsmith, former Assistant Attorney General in President Bush's Office of Legal Counsel. Both are regular contributors to Lawfare, and they are the authors of the book After Trump, Reconstructing the Presidency, which was published in fall 2020. They've now joined together again to start a new organization, the Presidential Reform Project, which proposes a bipartisan blueprint for reconstructing the presidency. We talked about their recommendations for reform, including a few that they've added to their list over the last year since writing their book. We talked about what's going on in Congress and the executive branch right now. And they explained why they believe that it really is still possible to implement some of their reforms. It's the Lawfare Podcast, October 8th, Bob Bauer and Jack Goldsmith on reforming the presidency. So Bob and Jack, last year you published your book called After Trump. And just last month, you started what's called the Presidential Reform Project, which builds on the recommendations in your book. I'd like to just start by talking about the project. Can you tell us what it is and what you're trying to accomplish with it? Yes, we are working through this project, which we organized a few months ago, I think it's a few months ago now, to try to participate very actively in the debate about presidential reform. And the purpose here is to give our efforts an ongoing focus, to add our voices, the voices of others who are concerned that the window is closing for meaningful reform of the institution of the presidency. So we thought it was important to concentrate and really boil our efforts down in any way we possibly could 
So this is a tax-exempt organization. Uh, we have a website to which we post content. There's a discussion there of the legislative priorities among the many potential avenues to presidential reform that we think, the priorities that we think are the most critical. And Jack and I are donating a significant amount of time to that tax exempt in the leading of this, our part of this effort. So what I would emphasize also is that, uh, you know, the website reflects content. It also reflects some of our ongoing activities here. I'll mention one in particular, but the website is potusreform.org. And there we you know, try to keep people apprised of developments and certainly of our activities. And one of the points that uh, we have stressed in establishing the Presidential Reform Project is that there are two avenues of reform, of course, one through the Congress, but the other one by internal regulation of the executive branch. And so among the actions uh, we've taken since the Reform Project was established, Jack and I sent a letter to uh, the Attorney General Merrick Garland asking him to really move forward with internal reforms that we think are important to protect the independence of the Department of Justice, particularly from politicization, uh, to clarify the standards that applies to the investigation of prior administrations, and in particular, uh, as well, on a topic everybody's very familiar with, to look at some of the recommendations that we and others have made for strengthening in light of experience uh, the special counsel regulations, obviously a subject of huge conversation over the period of the Trump administration. And that letter, for example, is reproduced in full on that website. So the presidential reform project is a way of sort of focusing attention on what we are trying to do, both internally in terms of pressing the administration to take action, also through legislation, and otherwise trying to maintain a pretty sharp spotlight on these issues. And I think I would underscore here that you know, time is short for accomplishing anything, and that's another reason why it was important for us to give organizational focus to our efforts. So we're obviously in a pretty different political climate than when you were initially writing the book. So in particular, I don't think you could have anticipated the efforts to subvert the election or everything around the events of January 6th. And we also have a very close Democratic majority in the Senate. So I'm wondering, has all of that affected your thinking about what reforms are necessary? And I want to also, after this, get to, as a separate issue, what reforms are possible? Sure. Yeah, of course. We wrote the book. It was published in September of 2020 with, you know, I think more than 50 reforms that we thought were appropriate in light of the experience of the Trump administration and past presidents. And we, you know, we didn't even know then whether who would win the election. We said in the preface that these reforms may be appropriate in 2021 or 2025, whenever there's an after Trump. And obviously, as you say, a lot of things have happened since then. So the situation we're in now is one where pragmatism is much more important uh, than it was for us uh, when we were making a whole range of proposals. So as you, as you say, that Congress is very closely divided. And it may seem like we're almost a year into uh, the Biden presidency and we haven't seen major reform yet. Uh, we haven't even seen a lot of reforms out of the executive branch, much less Congress. So the question is, what can be done now? And that's what we're really focusing on. I mean, almost every reform proposal in our book is present in some bill in Congress. Uh, but some of these bills are more likely to get movement than others. 
And what we're focusing on is trying to maximize whatever influence we might have or whatever persuasive influence we might have on the elements of the things we wrote about that are likely to pass or that have the best chance of passing. So, for example, in the Protecting Our Democracy Act bill that Representative Schiff introduced a week or two ago, he presented that as an anti-Trump bill, which in my view, in our view, was not the right frame to do that because, in fact, there are many reforms in there that many Republicans in the past have supported and indeed support now. So there's actually room, even though the Congress is very closely divided on many of these issues, for example, in the shift bill, where Republicans can plausibly join. Let me just say two more things. There's one thing about the current circumstance that's good and one challenge. The thing about reform right now that gives one a little bit of hope is that the current occupant of the, of the White House, President Biden, is in theory and I think in reality much more open to these reforms than just about any other president would be. Certainly a Republican president with a more unitary executive focus might not be so open to some of these reforms. President Biden has signaled that he is open to them, and I think that reforms that constrain the presidency are likely to get the best possible look under this president. That's the good news. The bad news, as Bob said earlier, is the window is closing. You know, we basically think that there's maybe a year in which there's a chance for some of this stuff to get through Congress. The closer we get to the midterms, the closer we get to the presidential election, the more that some of these proposals start to look like anti-Trump proposals, even though many of them aren't, the politics just get harder and harder. So there's an opportunity here. There's an opportunity for bipartisan agreement, but the window is fairly narrow. Okay, I'd love to dig in a bit on what exactly these reforms are to talk about what your recommendations were in the book and to the extent they have shifted a little bit since then. But why don't we start with what are these bipartisan reforms that you think really are possible and can be realistically passed? So Bob and I wrote a piece in Politico last week that went through this, and I'll just summarize it for you. We went through the Protecting Our Democracy Act, which is, again, this very large presidential reform bill, some of which doesn't have, I think, a plausible chance of getting through both houses, but some of it does. So just for example, the proposal in the bill to reform the pardon power by, for example, uh, making it a crime for the president to give a pardon for a bribe, that's something we proposed in our book. That's something that is not just about Donald Trump. This same issue, it, it did arise in the Trump presidency where some of his pardons bribes and should we try to regulate that. But the same issue arose at the end of the Clinton presidency and Republicans then were outraged by it. And this is an issue that shouldn't be, it shouldn't be something where there's political division. It's something that both sides have in the past agreed on and we think there's a chance for agreement there. Uh, another good example is the emergency powers reform that's in the Protecting Our Democracy Act. Again, I'm, I'm focusing on the Protecting Our Democracy Act because that's been, that is one kind of large bill that has a decently good chance of passing the House. And so the question is, are pieces of this available for passage in the Senate with Republican support? So another example is emergency powers reform. You know, the problem with emergency powers is that basically they can go on forever despite the National Emergencies Act, which is basically proved to be toothless. The key reform in the Protecting Our Democracy Act is that basically 
emergencies should not be allowed to go on forever. They should have a sunset provision and Congress should have to renew them. That is an idea that has been championed by Republicans, especially Senator Lee and others. But that's another example where there, there's a real chance of bipartisan agreement here. Another one is, I'll just mention one more, I can keep going if you want, congressional subpoenas. There's a provision in the Protecting Our Democracy Act to fast track congressional subpoenas so that basically presidents can't run out the clock by litigating and resisting the enforcement of subpoenas. This is a reform that for a long time has received Republican support. It's a reform that is relevant to both parties when at different times. And, and again, there's been, there's been agreement on that issue in the past. So there are others, but those are three examples where there's Democratic sponsorship likely to pass the House, significant potential Republican support in the Senate. And those are the areas where we think reform has a very good chance. Okay. And if I remember correctly, there was another one, which is sort of a core interest to lawfare listeners, um, which was war powers issues. Can you talk a little bit about that? Sure. There are many issues here in war powers reform. I'll divide it up into two or three. So the lowest hanging fruit and also the least consequential reform would be to repeal the 2002 AUMF. This is the provision that authorized the war in Iraq in 2002, the 2003 invasion of Iraq. It's been on the books ever since, even though its purposes have no longer apply. Presidents have dimly or in the alternative relied on this 2002 AUMF for operations that have no connection at all to the original purposes. And there's a very good chance that, I would say very, as good a chance as there is for any of these reforms for the 2002 AUMF to be repealed. Now, I don't know if that's good news or bad news, because that step by itself, while not while not nothing, is not much. The real significant piece of reform is whether to amend, update, clarify, and refine the 2001 AUMF, which, has been, which we've talked about on Lawfare since we started 11 years ago. And on this, there does seem to be more interest in both houses, and the president is open to it. But whether it happens or not, you know, when, when, when one gets down to the actual vote, Bob and I both testified in the spring on this question in the House, and there was a lot of interest in it, in amending the 2001 AUMF. But, but I think that there are still political hurdles to actually reaching agreement on what the amendment should be. So that's the second basket. The third basket, the most ambitious basket, and there's a, there's a bill on this, is to reform the actual war powers resolution itself, which is the 1970s law that was the most consequential law Congress ever enacted to constrain presidential power. It hasn't been very effective. There's a bill that would try to give it more teeth. Bob and I wrote in half a chapter on how we thought that the War Powers Resolution should be given more teeth. I think this is the longest shot of all for a whole bunch of reasons. It'll be harder to reach agreement in Congress, and probably, I'm guessing, this is just me guessing, harder to get the executive to sign on. So in sum, 2002 AUMF, very good chance of reform. 2001 AUMF, needed and quite possible, and there's more momentum now than perhaps ever, but still unclear whether it'll happen, and war powers resolution reform, I would say dim. So, Jack, you had mentioned that President Biden has indicated an openness to making some of these reforms. I'm wondering if you can talk about what is possible that the executive can do, the executive branch can do by itself that does not require congressional action that can implement some of these reforms in a meaningful way. 
Sure. As Bob mentioned at the outset, we've actually sent two letters to the Justice Department indicating and urging them to pursue what we think are the most important things they can do. So, And the point is that a lot of these reforms, especially as it concerns rule of law issues, White House, Justice Department relations, a lot of these reforms can and indeed must be implemented, if at all, by the Justice Department. So, for example, there are a number of suggested changes to the special counsel regulations in light of what we learned from the uh, Robert Mueller experience. That was actually Mueller's operation under the special counsel regulations were the first real test of those regulations since they were promulgated in 1999. Bob and I had a whole chapter on the lessons learned and what should be done. That can and should be implemented by the Justice Department. The Justice Department can take steps to deepen and clarify and indeed write down and publish the norm against politicized prosecutions. You know, It turns out that this is a norm that's been floating around the Justice Department, but it actually is not embodied in in written regulations or in training. We think that should be done. We urged the Office of Legal Counsel to withdraw some of the more extreme and extravagant and indefensible war powers opinions. That's something that can be done in the Justice Department by itself. There are steps that Inspector General Horowitz in several reports made clear that a lot of the norms that govern Justice Department behavior weren't clarified enough. For example, the 60-day rule before announcing a prosecutorial decision or something related to a prosecution before an election. It turned out that that very important norm was actually quite ambiguous. We urged that that be done. And there are a whole list of other things, I won't go through them all, that basically the Justice Department alone can do through its internal regulatory enactments to clarify the norms and buck them up. And and it's really important here to emphasize people grew skeptical about the operation of norms during the Trump era. Norms actually worked much better than people gave them credit for, not to restrain the president, but to restrain the Justice Department. Again, not being naive, not in every instance, but there were lots of examples when the Justice Department did not carry out the president's wishes. And these norms, especially if they're written down and clear, can indeed have a constraining effect on actors in the Justice Department. They always have, and they can continue to do so, but they need to be clarified. They need to be trained upon. And so we have a whole list of recommendations that can be taken just inside DOJ. Okay. Bob, we've had about nine months of the Biden administration so far. Are you seeing the administration, especially the Justice Department, but possibly elsewhere, actually implementing these reforms? Anything that you've suggested? And if not, what do you think is is most likely to be forthcoming? I can't speak to what uh, eventually uh, the Biden administration will embrace in the way of these reforms. As Jack has indicated, this is a president certainly has made it very clear that he's open to these reforms. Certainly very concerned about what happened to the Justice Department in recent years and through the appointment of Mary Garland and uh, certainly announcements that, that the attorney general has made, is committed to seeing uh, the Department of Justice and the norms that govern its actions sort of if you will, restored to a place where, you know, it really had not been in the preceding four years. It took obviously quite a beating over the preceding four years. So in a number of respects, and I would emphasize that one in particular, I think that it's clear uh, what direction this particular president wants to take. In the negotiations with Congress, uh, the Biden administration has indicated a willingness uh, to take up 
uh, the reforms in the in the POTA bill and the Protect Our Democracy Act. There have been negotiations around some hard issues. There was always going to be some tension between the Congress and the executive branch about the particular design of these reforms. There are balances to be struck, hard choices to be made. But uh, it, while it's too early to say I, I, what's going to happen, just where all of this is ultimately going to land, I'm optimistic that this, this does present a significant opportunity. On the other hand, I'm anxious, as I, I think Jack is, as anybody who follows and is concerned about this area of reform is, that time is not on our side. And as other issues crowd onto the agenda and you know, the concerns that were expressed over the preceding four years, for that matter, even before that, if you recall all the focus, even in Democratic administrations on you know, the imperial presidency, charges on both sides about overreach on the executive side, that somehow all of that sort of fades under the heat of contemporary controversies and it's difficult uh, to achieve some momentum. So our primary concern is to, as the expression goes, put points on the board, to see some of these reforms enacted so that we can establish some kind of momentum. And I think, to your question, the administration is definitely looking for some positive development in that respect. But again, the specifics are unknown. Okay, so have we seen in the Justice Department or otherwise in the administration any concrete steps so far? I know, for example, you had, as Jack mentioned, recommended withdrawing the OLC opinions um, that came out under previous administrations with regard to war powers. I haven't seen those memos withdrawn Yet, are there other examples of concrete actions that have been taken? I mean, I think, as you've said, it is extremely important on the messaging front and that the president and his administration are indicating an openness and stressing the importance of these reforms. But I'm wondering, you know, pen to paper, has there been anything going on? So the short answer is no, at least as far as the public is concerned. The two major reforms I can think of that the Garland Justice Department has implemented is they did issue a new White House contacts policy. Every administration has such policies. And while it was a a good step, it wasn't a surprising step and it wasn't a, a radical change from past practice. It was just a kind of a recommitment to the traditional norms. That's not nothing. The second thing they've done, and it wasn't one of the reforms we proposed, Attorney General Garland changed the Justice Department's internal regulations about when they will seek information from journalists in leak investigations. That was a big deal. Uh, That was a non-trivial change, but it doesn't get to, at least to the core of the rule of law issues we're interested in. On those issues, unless I've missed something, there hasn't been any public movement. Now, I don't believe that 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 means nothing is going on. Obviously, the Attorney General and his staff have lots of things on their plates. I do believe that they are considering serious reforms in light of what happened under the Trump administration and in past years. The FBI has implemented, I believe, some reforms related. They've implemented quite a few reforms related to some of the inspector general proposals in light of its many critical reports. But on our core issues, we haven't seen anything yet. Okay. I think all of that is is really important. But as you say, what can happen within the executive branch largely relates to policy implementation of norms. So I want to switch back over to Congress because that's where really the the meat of constraining the presidency and making legislative changes has to happen. 
So has there been anything in Congress that has at least spoken to some of the recommendations that you made in the book or recommendations that you would have made had you been writing the book later? Well, I can give an example of something that started to move last year and is reflected in the shift bill, and that is presidential pardon power reform. So we recommended in our book that there be two actions taken uh, to bring uh, the pardon within the scope of the bribery statute, make it clear it applies to the president, and then also to have Congress go on record uh, by enacting a prohibition on self-pardons. How that ultimately is resolved depends on almost certainly, eventually in some context, a Supreme Court decision-making that Congress can lay down a marker and make it very clear what is the view of the constitutionality of self-pardons. And I think there's a good chance that the position would be sustained. And it moved out of committee last year. It is now in the POTA bill. It is an example of a reform that people you know, might not be focused on in the immediate term because there's really nothing to put it before the public eye. But first of all, it's an issue that's arisen with administrations, certainly other than Trump. Trump, as in so many other areas, took it to the limits and beyond. Uh, that is to say, the self-serving use of the pardon power. And this is an example of an area where there ought to be bipartisan agreement and a really meaningful opportunity, to, as I said earlier, to put points on the board to, to indicate that these kinds of claims, uh, claims of presidential authority, are not going to go unanswered. And so long and short of it is, I think there's interest in this topic. And then the question is whether or not there's going to be just, again, enough of this sort of political momentum in a crowded legislative space to permit it to move forward. But that's an example where some some movement in the legislative process occurred, although we haven't seen you know, anything approach the final passage. But the unhappy bottom line is nothing yet. You know, we're almost a year into the Biden administration. There was a lot of talk about reforming the presidency. During the Biden administration, there have obviously been lots of very important things on the legislative agenda, things that are for obvious reasons deemed to be more important, including dealing with the COVID crisis and economic affairs and the like, the president's key economic agenda. So it hasn't made its way to the top yet. And, and so there hasn't been legislative reform on any of these issues yet. But as Bob suggested, there's a lot more movement now. There are a lot more serious proposals making their way through. And the next six to nine months is the crucial period. So it's, it's either going to happen in the next six or nine months, or it, it likely won't happen during this president's term. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a, it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. 
That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Hey, Lawfare listeners, Ben Wittes here. Want to tell you about the first time I got a report from the folks at Delete Me. It was shortly after I started using the service back in 2022, and they sent me their first privacy report. I have since gotten eight others, and it contained some shocking information. They had removed my data from 56 separate data brokers, that this had included 133 separate records, including 621 individual pieces of personal information. Uh, The data broker with the most information about me was a company I'd never heard of called People by Name. And here's the thing. Since then, every couple of months, I've gotten another privacy report from Delete Me, and it always contains more information that they have removed from the data brokers about me. In the second report, they informed me they had removed my stuff from 41 data brokers and that the one with the most information about me was called HLEC. I have no idea what HLEC is. So the other day, I got my latest report and it includes 15 more data brokers with my personal information, 113 pieces of personally identifiable information, Big culprit this time is something called my life. Well, I want to tell you that they don't have my life anymore. And that is why I recommend Delete Me. As this little anecdote shows, there's a lot of my data out there. And these companies keep acquiring it and making it available to anybody who can pay. And I have uh, slept a little bit more easily ever since I found a solution to this problem. And I want to stress, as I do every time, that I started using this before Delete Me started advertising with Lawfare. Delete Me finds and removes any personal information you don't want online, and it makes sure it stays off. And that's the point of this little story, that you know they keep coming back. You can get it removed once, but they'll put it back. And then Delete Me comes and takes it off again. It's a subscription service that removes your personal information from the largest people search databases on the web and in the process helps prevent potential identity theft, doxing, and phishing scams. Delete Me sends you regular personalized privacy reports, just like the ones I've been describing, showing what info they found where, where they found it, and what they removed. And critically, as this story reflects, it isn't just a one-time service. It's always working for you, constantly monitoring and removing the personal information you don't want on the internet. It does all the hard work of wiping you and your family's personal information off the web. Data brokers hate Delete Me, which is why I like it. Your profile is no longer theirs to sell. So take control of your data and keep your private life private by signing up for Delete Me, now at a special discount for our listeners. Today, get 20% off your Delete Me plan 
when you go to joindeleteme.com slash lawfare20 and use promo code lawfare20 at checkout. The only way to get 20% off is to go to joindeleteme.com slash lawfare20 and enter code lawfare20 at checkout. That's joindeleteme.com slash lawfare20, code lawfare20. So if I understand correctly, you have a little bit of optimism about increased momentum now that some of the more urgent business relating to COVID and the economic situation has been front-loaded in the administration. But how do you continue to build momentum or what are the ways to really try to push this to happen within the time frame you are talking about? It's going to require a major attempt to carve out space here for a bipartisan dialogue. What's going to become critically important is persuading actors, the key decision makers here, that number one, on the Republican side, this isn't just about Trump. This is a major institutional issue that transcends however strongly people felt about Trump on both sides. And secondly, that it is not, and the reforms that we're certainly prioritizing are not, ones that should be seen as, if enacted, advantaging one party or the other. So it's not just an attempt to rehash the Trump years, and it will not simply lead to you know the, one political party currently in control of the Congress using these reforms uh, to serve itself at the expense of the other party, that this is genuinely an area where both sides can come together and agree uh, that this reform is required on a bipartisan basis. So that's really important. That's important in the messaging that's important in the choice of the reforms that are going to be advanced. And that's very difficult, of course, in a polarized environment where everything winds up getting sucked into uh, the lines of debate that we have seen so vividly in, in recent years. But I think that's what's critical. It is just a mistake, say, for Democrats or Republicans to imagine that though they've all complained at one time or another about executive overreach, but what's really driving this debate is what happened to the Trump administration with a very unusual president at the helm. I'll put that mildly, but that really it's not something to worry about. It can't happen again. And that's just not correct. And one of the points we make in our book is it is, in fact, easy to imagine that not only will it happen again, but somebody far more experienced than Trump in government, far defter in wielding power, will actually be much more effective in abuses of the presidency that will take, you know, a real toll on our constitutional democracy. Yeah. And I think to that point, one of the guiding principles that you talked about in your book that you used to work together to come up with these recommendations was that you both wanted to make sure that you felt comfortable with the reforms you were proposing being adopted by a president whom you did not vote for. And I think that's a really great way to frame it, to think pragmatically about what can be done. So I'm wondering if you can say a little bit more about that approach. Sure. Bob and I came to this project both having served in the executive branch as senior executive branch lawyers, but having served for an administration of different parties. And we didn't come to this project knowing whether we agreed on what reforms are appropriate or not. Uh, we had no idea what we would agree on, frankly. And um, so one of the principles we laid down was uh, to, to listen to each other as much as possible and listen to the arguments and be open to them, and we were. But the other one was, as you just said, 
a kind of golden rule principle or whatever you want to call it, namely that you should imagine these reforms and ask yourself, would they be appropriate reforms to constrain a president that you voted for? And would the powers conferred on the president to be one you would be happy with if it were in the hands of a president you didn't vote for? Now, this is not obviously the way people in Washington, especially in Congress, tend to think. It's actually the way that the Constitution was designed. It it was designed, it was assumed that Congress as an institution would have an institutional interest in regulating, checking, overseeing the presidency. We've descended into a world of, as Daryl Evans and Rick Pildes argued, of, of separation of parties, not powers. And Congress thinks too much in terms of what's good for our party rather than what's good for our institution and what's good for the separation of powers. But it's just vital to emphasize that almost all of the reforms, indeed, I would say all of the ones that we urge in our book, many of them were a response to Trump, but most of them were a response to presidential actions going back at least to Watergate and, and sometimes before. And it's vital for reform to have success here to realize that these are reforms that should constrain the presidency no matter who the president is. These are almost all reforms that in one form or another in the past have had bipartisan support. There was bipartisan support about huge bipartisan consensus on the general norms that govern the presidency and the general laws that govern the presidency before the Trump administration. And a lot of these reforms are just aimed to bring us back to that status quo and to reinforce that. So this is what Bob and I tried to achieve in our reforms, in in, in coming to agreement on our reforms. We think that a good number of the reforms that are at the top of the legislative agenda meet that criterion. And that's the right way to think about it in our view. Yeah, that's interesting because one thing that had occurred to me is it really does seem that a way to message this, although this is too esoteric a framing, I think, is that there are separation of powers issues at stake here. And Congress, you would think, has an interest in protecting its institutional integrity. But as you say, there's a lot of prioritization of party over institution. So do you have any suggestions or thoughts on how Congress might be able to adopt the sort of guiding principle that you all used in putting together your book? The countervailing forces are very powerful. It's not only, as Jack said correctly, that separation of powers have been overcome by separation of parties, but in a polarized era, the issues that they see themselves separated on are viewed as existential. There are issues of just, you know, monumental moment on which, you know, compromise with the other side is, at least to some members of the party, is unthinkable. And so breaking through that is going to be something of a challenge. But having said all of that, I think that there is, though not likely, say, in the Republican caucus, a hundred percent of the caucus open to being persuaded along the lines. I think there are enough Republicans and certainly enough Democrats uh, to make a majority if we can, again, be very disciplined about the message and the selection of the reforms that we're talking about, where, as I said, it, 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 it can be very clear, it's not just about Trump, it's about a future that nobody will be happy with, and the reform in question is not a reform 
that is going to reliably advantage one party over the other, and it hasn't been designed that way. And if you can push hard on that, I think there are members of good conscience on both sides who realize what's at stake, and I think could respond affirmatively. But that's one of the reasons we set up the Presidential Reform Project, and others have also organized themselves to really, really push hard with that focus right now, because it is meeting with powerful countervailing forces. And it's probably one of the reasons why, for all the talk about reform post-2020, and granted there have been other things on the legislative agenda to generate the delay, is one of the reasons we haven't seen anything, is that there are these very powerful countervailing forces. But I think there is room for an agreement. I just want to come back to a point that I made earlier, because I think it's so important, and that is... If you step away from the whose ox gets gored in the short, medium, and long term, and who is this reform aimed at, and you just look at the reforms, so many of the reforms that the Democrats in Congress are pushing have been supported in the past by Republicans, and indeed are supported now by Republicans. I'll give you another example that I didn't mention earlier. There are a whole bunch of bills before the Congress on Inspector General Reform, and the different bills had different emphases, but there are three or four core provisions, and especially one on enhancing Inspector General independence vis-a-vis the president through vacancies reform. That's an esoteric topic, but it's a topic on which there's a general consensus about the value of Inspectors General in Congress. There's a general consensus on steps that should be taken to give this very discreet reform to help maintain Inspector General independence from presidential firings and opportunistic replacements. And again, these are issues on which Senator Grassley has been pushing this issue for a long time. He has support from other senators, Republican senators on that side of the House. Democrats have been supporting this. This is not an issue on that we need to see in terms of of politics. Frankly, there's a consensus on it. The question is, can you break through the divisiveness that seems to be the you know, the default these days and just recognize that you actually agree on these issues. So get it done. I mean, there's really remarkable consensus among a good chunk of Republicans and a lot of Democrats on a lot of these issues. Those are the areas where we're most hopeful and where we're focusing most of our attention. Great. And I'll just take this opportunity to put in a plug for the article that we published recently of yours relating to Inspector General's reform and some of the legislation currently under review. And thank you for that. I find it very helpful. Just to to drill down on this in very concrete terms, of these bipartisan reforms, which do you think is the most urgent to be made? What should Congress front load right away and push through? Right. So in our view, a lot of the bills are about enhancing inspector general authority in various ways. And we're focused less on that, which There's a healthy debate about that and whether that should happen and what it should look like. But there's one core area that we think is vital. We talked about this in our book, and it's in a couple of the bills. And that is the combination of the way that the the president can fire the inspector general and the way vacancies work, which under current law, the president can basically replace a Senate-confirmed inspector general with someone who's not Senate-confirmed and who's much more close to the president and who obviously won't have the same independence as an inspector general. That is an issue that has been a problem in the past. There was some controversy under the Obama administration about that, but President Trump made clear that that is, he exploited that weakness in inspector general independence more than others. 
And that's an issue that we think where we think reform is vital. Now, there are basically two points in play on Capitol Hill. One is some members think, and some bills have both of these, but some members think that we should raise the bar for, make it harder for the president to fire an inspector general in the first place through four cause removal provisions where you list the reasons that the inspector general can be fired and you limit the president's authority to fire except in those circumstances. Bob and I don't think that's the most fruitful reform. For one thing, it's of doubtful constitutionality given recent Supreme Court presidents. And for another thing, frankly, it won't be very hard for a president to meet a four-cause requirement to get rid of an attorney general. We think it's much more fruitful to, both in terms of giving the president a disincentive to fire in the first place and for controlling the effects of a firing of an inspector general, to limit the circumstances on who the president can replace that inspector general with. This is getting a little bit into the legal weeds, but Congress has a lot more authority over controlling vacancies reform and who the president can put in temporarily into an executive branch position than it does on removal that I mentioned earlier. And there are bills on the Hill that mirror things we argued for that basically say that the criteria should be tightened and that the president can only replace a fired or vacated inspector general slot with someone who's either served in, who, who's a career official, a non-political appointee, I'm simplifying a bit, within that inspector general office or within another one. And that simple reform, but vital reform, would go a long ways towards protecting inspector general independence. It's something that, again, has had bipartisan support. So that's an example. Again, it's a technical one. It's down in the weeds. It might not seem like it's important, but that simple reform would do quite a lot, in our view, to enhance the independence of inspectors general, who they're not perfect. The Office of Inspector General is not a perfect institution, but it's really served a vital role in many agencies in executive branch accountability. So we think that reform is very important. Yeah. And it strikes me that the fact that it is a little bit in the weeds can actually be a benefit. This doesn't need to get a lot of attention in the public and doesn't need to become the fodder for a lot of politicization and debate. So maybe that's something that is a real benefit. I think you're right. And I hope you're right. <laughs> so on, on the flip side of this, of the reforms that do not have bipartisan support, are there some that you think, presumably Democrats, should try to push through you know, before the midterms that should should really take the type of concerted effort or worthy of the concerted effort to really push through, even if they are not going to be able to do it with Republicans? Well, the danger, of course, is that if you don't have bipartisan support, their shelf life could be limited. And then what have you accomplished? I think it's really important to, to do this on a bipartisan basis. And even if you had to recognize that there's some reforms that may have to wait another day and you push others to the forefront so that you can at least accomplish something here. I think that's probably what you need to do. I don't have in mind uh, something that I think, at least in the roster of reforms that Jack and I have written about and that are reflected in the prioritization that we're, we've, we've adopted for this current congressional deliberation. I can't think of one I would say I would favor you know, pushing ahead with over Republican opposition, I would favor every effort whatsoever to get bipartisan agreement. I think that's essential to making this work. There are issues, by the way, I should add, there are issues that I think are of great moment that Jack and I don't discuss in our book that have come up 
since we wrote the book, transition reform, the Electoral Count Act, you know, Congress's role in the election of the president, where some real problems have developed that I think it is madness uh, for the two parties to overlook on some belief that if they engage in some responsible reform activity, it means that one side is going to get the better of the other. But again, that's so close to the bone of electoral politics. I don't see much movement in the direction of reform there. But I think those are urgent. It's just a shame uh, that that can't be discussed in a serious way and move forward because we don't want a calamity like the one that was in development, but fortunately did not come to pass at the end of 2020. Yeah. And I guess just to follow up on that, are there other reforms that should really, really be pushed that you didn't talk about in your book, but that you have come to see as necessary since writing and since observing what happened, for example, around the election and January 6th and some of the other issues that we've been seeing? Certainly transition reform. I think that the confusions over the role of the General Services Administration and arranging for support for a full transition, the so-called ascertainment of who the apparent presidential winner was. There are some legislative proposals pending on that, but I think that's extremely important. And by the way, the fixes wouldn't be complicated and they wouldn't be expensive. Uh, so it, it seems, again, I have to say, mad uh, that that can't be fixed. It should be obvious that that is a door that swings both ways. And the Republicans should be just as happy to have that problem fixed as the Democrats would be. That's an example. And in the more fraught area of congressional procedures in the presidential election, for example, the role of the vice president of the United States, again, that door swings both ways. It just I, I don't know of anybody who sensibly believes that the Constitution confers authority on the president of the United States, the vice president of the United States to determine who the next president is. And so I think that it would not be difficult if you could close the doors and have people speak without fear of sort of being observed by partisans and castigated on Twitter, it wouldn't be difficult to reach an agreement on how that problem is fixed. And there are other problems in the Electoral Count Act, I think, that lend themselves to a reasonably clean resolution. But that, as I said before, that's so close to the electoral nerve here that I think uh, it's hard to see anything moving on that. So I think I'll just end with, as for me personally, someone who is also really an institutionalist. One of my big fears is that too many people think that the only way really to avoid the abuses that we saw under the Trump administration is through a political solution, which is just somehow to make sure that neither he in 2025 nor anyone else like him becomes president again. And and you spoke about the fear that you have, which I share, that if someone with the same tendencies but much more experience and ability to navigate the system comes in, the possible damage is much, much greater. What would you say to those who believe that the best or only way to avoid these abuses in the future is just through a political solution? So, I mean, I actually believe that the most important way to guarantee that the president and his or her administration has integrity is to elect the right president. And that's no doubt true. And I also will acknowledge, I'm not sure Bob agrees with this, but I'll acknowledge that if every single one of our reforms were passed, that wouldn't make it impossible, certainly, for there to be a presidential abuse. But having said both of those things, it can make a huge difference in less on 
controlling what the president does. The president is actually a hard actor to control, especially when he or she is talking. You can't stop presidential speech. We learned that in the Trump administration. The question is, can you temper the consequences of presidential abuse? Can you put in place institutions in the Justice Department such that if you have a president like that, you'd have more confidence than we did during the Trump administration that uh, the Justice Department continues to act with integrity and that the norms there are going to uh, hold despite that type of president. And if you had certain laws in place, for example, we haven't talked about conflict of interest and tax evasion, you would have more confidence that if you had a president who was inclined to blur the lines between public and private action, you'd have a lot more confidence that the president wasn't able to do that. So, and I could go on and on through every reform, and none of them are silver bullets. Every one of them is important. This is a battle that you know takes place at the margins, and uh, everything that we can do, the country can do, to give confidence in our institutions and to set up structures that such that we have confidence in our institutions, or at least more confidence than we otherwise would, in the face of a president who's inclined to abuse. That's what the goal is here. And so, yes, it's really important to elect a president with integrity, but it's also important to prepare for one who is not a person of integrity. I completely agree with all of that, uh, as Jack knows. And then I just add one more thing, which is the role of civil society, uh, the role of those institutions, whether it's the, you know, the organized bar, the religious community, the business community, the labor community, however we you know, decide to identify you know, the key associations that play such an essential part in the democracy and in the way people live and are affected uh, in their daily lives. It seems we just cannot have this just be a conversation between the two political parties with an overlay of commentary and major news publications or opinion organs, which are themselves all polarized. It seems to me that on this whole question of fundamental defense of institutions, we need to hear from higher education, from the bar, from these other critical uh, institutions within what makes up the civil society. And I, I just think that I haven't studied this deeply, so I don't want to, you know, pronounce pompously on the subject. But I have to say, I don't think that voice has been as sharp uh, as it could be at various points. Uh, and I think that if you compare, for example, the role that civil society played in the post-Watergate period in response to the Nixon administration abuses to the role it played in the last couple of years, you know, I honestly think there's an account here uh, that isn't particularly reassuring. And I think that is in some way needs to be reinvigorated. I think that's a great place to stop. Everyone get to work. There are more voices that are needed. So I want to wish you guys luck with this really, really important project. And thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for your great questions. Thanks so much. The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. You can get ad-free versions of this and other Lawfare Podcasts by becoming a Lawfare material supporter at patreon.com slash lawfare. You'll also get access to special events and other content available only to our supporters. Please rate and review us on iTunes. Check out our written work at lawfareblog.com. And if you're feeling inspired, you can get Lawfare merchandise at thelawfarestore.com. The podcast is edited by Jen Patia Howell, and your audio engineer this week was Kara Schillen of Goat Rodeo. Our music is performed by Sophia Yan. As always, thank you for listening.